tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Again, sounding like a broken record. Thank you. The generosity of people is always uh, an amazing thing. Uh, so that said, let's, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Let us not dawdle about, but let us go straight to the whole chapter. Once again, you see that in the... Uh, um, uh, the lect the reading for today in the lectionary, it's Genesis eight six to thirteen, comma verse twenty to twenty two, and I I think that we need to go back to the seventh chapter to really uh, understand this. So click on the citation on your USCCB um, website. I talked to you, uh, to you about how to do that. Um, Yesterday, so I'm not going to go over that again, but we're going to go right to the uh, seventh chapter, the previous chapter, the chapter previous to the one that uh, we are uh, reading today. Uh, the Lord said to know, go into the ark, you and all your household, for you alone of this generation have I found to be righteous before me. Uh, so uh, this is... Uh, the Lord is not giving up uh, on humanity. He's just finding a human being who's human. You know, well, why would God do that? Why would God destroy everyone? Well, first of all, God is the Lord of life. He's the only one who has the right to take life. He gives life. He takes it. Uh, however, I think you have to understand that that we're the ones who choose these things. We, we we choose to allow God to work in our life or we choose to allow God not to work in our life. And, you know, that's the whole deal. I mean, we, we you and I look at, at death as the worst possible. Oh, dear, I'm going to get a little personal. <laughs> I, I Sorry about that. We look at death as the worst possible thing. It's not. Sin is worse. Well, <laughs> it doesn't seem worse. It is worse. Uh, I, you know, I, this is, I say, forgive me, bringing a little personal, but 
as I, I'm sure I've shared this with you already, but my, my mother was one of the most wonderful people I've ever known. She was one of the kindest women I've ever known. She taught school for, for many, many years at the local Catholic school when I was, had, was finally grown. And people will come up to me to this day. I think the last one who came up to me was, was a few months ago. And my mother's been dead 30, more than 30 years. And people will talk to me about, oh, your mother saved my life when I was a little kid. Your mother changed my, changed me. She, she kind of, she rescued me, that kind of thing. That's the kind of woman she was. Well, when she died, it was, of course, a great loss. But being German, we have to be stoic, you know. We, 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 at least the Germans I was raised with, you don't grieve publicly, uh, but you do grieve. And uh, uh, it really hit me, you know, after everything was settled and uh, her mother was in her grave for a month or so, I started to have these horrible nightmares that, that, mother had not died, but that she had abandoned us and was living in a halfway house in California. And my sister and I were going to go and try to bring her back. She wouldn't even recognize our existence. And I would wake up in a cold sweat and I would, I would thank God my mother was dead. I know that sounds awful, but the Lord in his mercy showed me that no abandonment uh, and unfaithfulness are worse than death. Because you see, even when a loved one dies, uh, the fact that you love them and that they loved you, death can't erase that. It's still true. So if you have someone in your life or people in your life, even if they're gone, for whom you are thankful, well, thank God, because even time and death can't take that away. We look at death as worth, how could God do that? Well, you know, what's the song? The uh, um, uh, Jim Morrison of the Doors said, no one gets out alive. He's right. This is a temporary arrangement. And when uh, a week or two ago we were talking about the Garden of Eden, I pointed out to you that it was not perfect. Man was not fated to die, but it didn't say that he he didn't die. <laughs> uh, um, it wasn't a perfect world. There was death in it in the form of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in the form of the serpent. And they were, though, though not destined to die, they were, they were uh, in danger of death. And God allowed that to happen. Um, I think it's very important that we understand that this is, in fact, temporary housing. So he found one righteous man, one man who was truly alive. Uh, um, and... Uh, that that was the man that he rescued. So, and then I mentioned they took uh, seven pairs of the clean animals and two, just one pair of the unclean animals. And then there was, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came upon earth. This makes people crazy. Was he really 600 years? I don't know. I wasn't there. But you will find, uh, uh, I, I point out there was a culture that they, when they tried to get Americans to start eating yogurt, which we, we Americans thought, that milk is spoiled. Uh, oh, no, that's yogurt. It's wonderful. It tastes spoiled. <laughs> they needed to create a market. So they had these commercials with these people who were claiming to be climbing trees at the age of 190 because they ate yogurt. It was in uh, was one of the one of the stands, like Nuristan or really, really Badistan or something like that. And years later, somebody went to see these how these people were doing who were the yogurt-eating senior citizens and he found out they didn't really live to be 150. They lived you know, 70, 80, 90 like we do. But 
they had enough dignity in their community to be thought of as 150 years old. So remember, numbers have value, word values. And as you depart from the Garden of Eden, human beings' lives get shorter and shorter and shorter because they're less virtuous. Noah was 600 years old. He was quite virtuous. Well, he went into the ark with his family, and the fountains of the great abyss burst forth. The floodgates of the sky were open. For 40 days and 40 nights, heavy rain poured down on earth. Now, one of the meanings I, I, I have read, and it makes sense in the scripture, uh, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, um, 40 is a, is a... 40 means a period of testing. 40 days in the desert. Even the 40 days after Easter were a test for the disciples. <laughs> when Peter said, are you going to establish the kingdom now? He failed the test miserably. So 40 is, I would say, usually a sign of testing, maybe always a sign of testing in some sense. So humanity was tested in the flood for 40 days. Um, and uh the, those that entered were male and female. I don't think that would be allowed now. The flood continued, tongue-in-cheek, for 40 days, higher and higher, the waters swelled until all the highest mountains under the heavens were submerged. Uh, the waters swelled 15 cubits higher. A cubit is the, uh, uh, the measure of the tip of the middle finger to the elbow. Uh, that's uh, the basic cubit. So all the creatures that moved on the earth perished. The Lord wiped out every being on earth. Only Noah and those in the ark were left. Now, is this literally true? Again, I don't know. I wasn't there. It certainly reflects an event that seems to have happened and seems to have been universally reported in, in quite a number of cultures. So we come to chapter 8, and it's interesting. God remembered. Uh, that's a funny word. God remembered. Had he forgotten? Uh, no, of course he hadn't forgotten. To, to remember is a little bit different than than to, um, I think the meaning is a little bit different than we think of it. Uh, to remember, uh, you know, we have remembrances, uh, remember, memorial services for people. Uh, does that mean that, well, we've forgotten them? No, we're just specially remembering them. So that word in, in Hebrew is yizkor. Uh, it, 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 it's a very powerful word. It, when it's used uh, by Jews today, it means a memorial service. And this is what Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He would have used the word, I suspect, Yitzchor. Uh, and it, it, it means it makes them present. Uh, it's very, it's, a, it's kind of a strong word. So they were present to God again. One can almost say it that way. So God made a wind sweep over the earth. Now, that's interesting because that gets repeated further on in the book of Exodus uh, that a mighty wind blew over the uh, uh, the sea and poured it back so the Hebrews could escape. Uh, and it also uh, uh, recounts the creation epic, you know, that uh, uh, the spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters, and that word spirit is ruach, which means a wind. And the wind of the Lord hovered over the waters. So this is an important symbol. So in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. At the end of 40 more days, Noah opened the, the hatch. He released a dove. The dove could find no place to perch or return to the ark. He waited seven more days, released the dove, and the dove came back with an olive leaf. And then another seven days, he released the dove. 
this time it did not come back. So this is this is a very beautiful story. Go out to with all the living creatures that are with you. So Noah went out and offered the altar to the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord and choosing from every clean animal, every clean bird, he offered burnt offerings on the altar and the Lord smelled the sweet odor. The Lord said to himself, never again will I curse the ground because of human beings. Since the desires of the human heart are evil from earth, nor will I strike down every living being as I have done. All the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. This is a wonderful promise of the Lord. We we should we should trust it. Uh, we can trust God. And I think of what Our Lady of Fatima said. These are perilous times in which we're living. But I think of the promise of Our Lady of Fatima, which, of course, is a private revelation, one to which I am quite partial. But... Um, she said, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph and there will be peace. Because we live in times in which, well, peace seems very far away. Fire so. and brimstone coming down from the skies. <laughs> oh, good grief. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Voice in my head is thinking of fire and brimstone. Eh, well, nah. he said he wouldn't destroy all life, but um, he might uh, slap us upside the head. Well, let's go to the gospel. When Jesus and his disciples arrived at Bethsaida, people brought him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Now, this is interesting. Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark, tries to hide his miracles. Have you noticed that? Uh, he says, tell no one I did this. This is called the Messianic secret. And... The reason I think for that is there were lots of messiahs. People would declare themselves a messiah, and then people would go home and get a sword and go kill a Roman, and then the streets would run with blood. I mean, Jesus was constantly saying, I'm not the messiah that you want. I'm the messiah that God has sent. Uh, this is, this is um, a very important biblical principle for all of us, that we expect God to work in a certain way. And as I tell you constantly, God has this problem. He thinks he's God. He's going to do it the way he wants to do it. He's going to do it the right way, not my way. So people were expecting a certain kind of political Messiah. And Jesus, in effect, was saying, I'm, I'm not that. I'm not what you want. I'm what God has sent. And God's ways are not your ways. The prophet said that regularly. So he took him outside the village. He didn't want the big stir. Jesus really, I think, I was thinking of that reading we had uh, last week, the week before, where a woman with an with a issue of blood touched the hem of, of Jesus' garment. And he said, power's gone out for me. Jesus was that in tune with the individual persons who came to him. He didn't look out and count the crowd. He spoke to the person. And that, that's a real powerful thing. So, well, this is fascinating. He put spittle on his eyes and laid hands on the man. The laying on of hands is a healing gesture. It's also a sacrificial gesture. The, that uh, one lays hands on, this, and we get this from the Jews, it's called smicha, ordination. You, you, you lay hands in blessing on someone who's to be ordained an elder. You lay hands, Jesus did for healing, but you also, the high priest also laid hands, imposed hands on a sacrificial victim. And I think that's an important uh, uh, correlation that 
when Jesus heals you, you've been consecrated to God. You know, we think it would be great if God would heal me so I could go back to my bowling league on Monday or whatever. That's not why he heals you. He heals you so that you can follow him, at least spiritually. Go your way and sin no more, he says, lest something worse befall you. So uh, Jesus consecrated people in healing. And so many of us don't understand that if God works a great miracle miracle in our life, we belong to him. He doesn't work miracles for just for the sake of convenience or cheap medicine. I believe he works miracles in our lives that we might serve him. So he put spittle on his eyes. Why did he put spittle on his eyes? Because there was a belief that there was healing in the spittle of a firstborn son. That's interesting. Jesus uses spit in his ministry. We don't. I don't, uh, unless I'm in a friend, white heat frenzy of preaching. But no, Jesus. Jesus used spit, and it was a symbol that he was the firstborn son of God, the son of the Father. That's that's what the spit is about, most probably. There are other possible interpretations, but I think that that's the most reasonable one. There was a belief in the ancient world that the firstborn, the spittle of a firstborn son had certain healing properties to it. Uh, and that's why Jesus did that. So, uh, do you see anything? I see people looking like trees and walking. Uh, this is, I think, probably a man born blind. So, Jesus does the same thing again. He lays hands on the man's eyes a second time and he saw clearly. So there were a couple things that needed to be healed. And I think that's fascinating that Jesus didn't just go presto changeo. He, he kind of led this man through the paces of healing. And, and it was a very personal thing. This wasn't one size fits all. You're healed next. You know, that's not how Jesus worked. He dealt with a person, uh, as a person. And I think this is another example of that Jesus asked him, do you see anything? <laughs> Jesus is not saying, did it work? No, he's saying, what do you see? And he, he didn't give up on the man until the man was fully restored. And I think this is a sign to him or a sign to us. Rather, it's a, a principle. You don't give up just, well, I prayed for you and you know, next. Then he sent him home and said, don't even go into the village. He didn't want um, he didn't want all the the hoopla and the adulation and um, the, um, the 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 silliness that often accompanies faith healing in our times. All right, let us go to a break and we will come back uh, with letters. You're oh, and you can call in at eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Let me tell you that number again: eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. And time keeps dragging on 
But the train keeps rolling. Good old. I can never hear Johnny Cash without thinking of Father Bill Eddy, my classmate, who is, is, has left the world already, but <laughs> especially that one. What's that one about I've been everywhere? That certainly was Father Eddie. All right, let us know. That's it. <laughs> you got it. Well, all right, let's get back to the show. Okay, let, there we go. Let's, let's, um, um, let's, whatever we're doing. Let's, letters. Yes, that's, that's the letters thing. Okay, I got a letter from Carol. I, somebody mentioned they were going to, um, Rome, and I said, whenever you go to Rome, you got to see something called the Scavi, S-C-A-V-I. It is one of the most impressive things you're going to see, but you got to know what it is. It is a subterranean street from ancient Roman times that was a street in a cemetery. The Church of St. Peter's is built literally over the grave of St. Peter. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. When Jesus said... Uh, that I I will build my church on this rock. Well, St. Peter's Church is built. The Pope sits like about 20 feet above the bones of St. Peter when he's sitting there for some grand ceremony. And this is impressive. And you can actually see the bones of St. Peter. They are in the tomb, but they have opened the side of the tomb. And they are, of course, encased, but... You can see the bones of St. Peter. And uh, it was discovered, the tomb was discovered by St., uh, or rather, uh, by Pius Twelfth, And uh, he sent, I, you know, people said, well, you know, there are those who say that the, the St. Peter wasn't buried here. There's no Bible evidence he ever came to Rome. And, and the Pope said, well, let's find out. And so bravely, he sent teams of, of uh, archaeologists in to find these bones when they had discovered this treat and there they were and rather clearly marked so um you can see them but you have to kind of apply early and get tickets uh and you can find on the web how to get tickets for the scavi that's s-c-a-v-i so uh, catholics rock they do yes (laughs) moving along and uh um so this Scavi tour is really worth seeing, and uh, um, it's spelled S-C-A-V-I, and it's very good. When you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Rome, it's really a good thing to to uh, it's a really good thing to to uh, read up on it beforehand. And that's all the introduction to this letter I got from Carol. Uh, there's a great book on St. Peter's grave. It's called The Fisherman's Tomb. There you go. Oof. Finally, I got to the point of what I was saying. The Fisherman's Tomb. So worth, worth studying. All right, let's go to now. Let's see here. Um, in Genesis, this is from Don in Geneva, Illinois. Um, I was listening to one of your programs on archive and you discuss God's rejection of Cain's sacrifice. I was reminded of the prayers in the mass at the preparation of the gifts in Genesis chapter four, Cain brings an offering from the fruit of the soil in the preparation of the gifts in the preparation of the gifts at mass. We bring bread, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It seems like the person who composed that prayer is emphasizing that we bring God the same offering God rejected from Cain. Yet soon after that offering, it becomes the ultimate, perfect, and all-sufficient su- su- sacrifice. Stunning, isn't it? 
I think it is stunning. Well, is there some deeper meaning? I, you know, remember what I don't know, I can always make up. But when I, I reading your, your note, uh, Don, I thought, yeah, that, that all of my offerings are insufficient until touched by the grace of God. When bread and wine are touched by the grace of God, they become flesh and blood, the flesh and blood of the perfect man, Jesus, who is son of God and son of Mary. So I, yeah, that is. And to me, the meaning of that is my offering of, of bread and wine, which are fruits of the earth, is insufficient. It's not good enough. But when the prayer is uh, the fruit of the earth, work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. So in other words, we're counting on God to transform this, to give us something worth offering, which we do. So I think that's an interesting insight. So thanks for the note. All right. Now. Uh, let's see here. This is a note from uh, um, uh, Jerry. I traveled to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage and downloaded some programs to listen on the 11-hour plane ride. I cannot sleep on airplanes. I don't either. After listening to three episodes, I started the fourth episode. And the next thing I know, there was silence. I'd slept through the whole episode. He was listening to my show at the time. I suppose I should be glad that I have a therapeutic effect. I actually knew some guy who could preach children to sleep in three or four minutes. Good. Uh, happy, to have got, happy to have gotten some sleep. I restarted the episode. After four more attempts, I finally listened to the whole episode. <laughs> so if you, if you can't sleep, just listen to me. Spending 10 days visiting and praying at biblical sites was life-changing. Fortunate to be with one from the line of the apostles. Uh, so now to my question, my wife and I raised four children and taught that they are protected by guardian angels. Is there scriptural reference covering guardian angels? Of course there are. Jesus said that they're angels. He said, looking at the verse, they're angels in heaven. Uh, watch constantly. Matthew eight ten. See that you do not look down on any one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And that's the thing about about uh, uh, angels; they can they can be in two places at once, just like Padre Pio. Matthew eighteen ten is the verse for which you are looking. So I hope that helps. Uh, let's see here. Let me go to another. What time is it? Oh, I oh I got plenty of time. I'll do another letter. All right. Um, this one is from Daniel. Uh, Dan, um, on Monday's show, you answered a question regarding Jewish expectation for the Messiah. I'm curious. I've heard you say that the only infallible scripture to an Orthodox Jew is the Torah. Whence came their ideas of the Messiah? If they don't see a reference to him, there are references in the Torah. They're very oblique. Let me explain this. Modern Jews are much more insistent on the primacy of Torah, I believe, than ancient Jews. Ancient Jews would have insisted on the books of the Mo uh, the books of Moses. They called them. Jesus called them. In Mo Moses wrote uh, the, in 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 the books of Moses that kind of thing. Um, we used to call it the Pentateuch. Penta is five in Greek, and Tuke is things that fall together or chance. So the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch. Um, the Torah was the central and most important part of the scripture because it contained the revelation on Mount Sinai. And the rest of the Hebrew scriptures were kind of a development of it, a commentary on it, um, the fruit of the Torah. Uh, what the Hebrew Bible is called is the Tanakh, 
which is a combination of three words, Torah, Nebiim, Ikutavim. The Torah is the law, the instruction. The Nabiim is the books of the princes, in other words, or the prophets, rather. Uh, then the Kuthibim are the writings. Those are the three divisions. You combine the first two, let- the first two letters of Torah, first two letters of Nabiim, and then the first two letters of Kuthibim. You get Tanakh, or the last letter, the first letter of Kuthibim. So that's the Hebrew Scriptures. However, the the... Uh, Hebrew scriptures were much more fluid at the time of Christ, and there was more dispute on what was inspired. The Sadducees believed only that the first five books of the Bible were even from the Lord. They, they didn't pay attention to the prophets and all that. The Pharisees included the prophets, and possibly more than is present in the Hebrew canon, and the uh, Essenes and people like that had all sorts of extra books that they considered inspired. So it was very fluid, and it wasn't really canonized until uh, quite a while after the, the, the death of the Lord and the, his resurrection. So uh, the, the, the Torah was agreed on by all Jewish groups. Uh, the others were more fluid. So that said, oh, and the Samaritans have slightly different texts. So... Uh, wouldn't in in the Torah there are two oblique references to the possibility of Messiah in the story of Balaam and Balak we see a star rising out of Israel okay and then in uh, the um, let's see where's the next one the star rising out of Israel oh and in the uh, um, uh, the final, uh, I think it's in the final testimony of of Moses, uh, Judah is mentioned and the primacy of Judah. And possibly one could look at Abraham and say that. Um, so I'm th- I think it's in the, the final the final testimony of 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 Moses. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, the final testimony of Moses comes in to the oh, good grief. Hold on. It comes in at the very end of uh, of Deuteronomy here, I believe. Okay, at the assumption of Moses. Oh, oh no, that's a first century work. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, let's see. Well, I, I I need to probably do more research on that. So let's go to a break, and I'll finish the theme uh, when we get back. We'll be right back. Oh, the phone number, 888-914-9149. Hi, this is Father Rich Simon. Have you ever dreamt of seeing the sights in Italy? St. Peter's Basilica? The Sistine Chapel? Drew Mariani in the Colosseum, fighting to the death? More info on our September Eucharistic Revival Pilgrimage at RelevantRadio.com slash Italy. Seats are limited, not in the Colosseum necessarily, but on, on the pilgrimage. Oh, come, let us go back to God, go back to oh, God. Come on. Let us go back, Let's go back to God. 
continuing with the theme about which I was ranting and raving, um, Genesis, Genesis 49.10, this is Jacob's, I think Abraham, Jacob blessed his sons. And he says, Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the prey like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet until Shiloh, sometimes translated Shiloh, but it probably is really Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, comes and the allegiance of the nations is his. He ties his donkey to the vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This is a messianic prophecy uh, that someone is coming who will, Judah will be in charge until this one to whom the scepter belongs comes. And that was always thought of as a messianic uh, prophecy. So there are a couple of allusions that are clear. Now, there, uh, there was one site I was looking at that, that uh, just uh, finds all sorts of references, but those take interpretation. But there are a couple very clear indications in the uh, books of Moses. Uh, but, well... You could dispute them. So uh, the uh, the idea of a Messiah amplified, especially among the the uh, the sect groups that were gathered around uh, the Red Sea, you know, like the Essenes and the others. We don't really know who they were, but it seems that there were quite a number of radical uh, sects who kind of turned their back on the temple because it had become corrupted. So all that said... Uh, there are some, at least a couple clear indications in the Torah. Uh, and my theory is that as Judaism went along after the separation of Christianity and Judaism, uh, that the, the attitude that only the books of Moses were truly infallible probably hardened because you can take books from the books of the prophets and, uh, um, really indicate that they uh, uh, promise a Messiah and, and describe a Messiah who could have suffered as did Jesus. So I think that that's a historical development. Now, that said, uh, Orthodox Judaism, especially ultra-Orthodox Judaism, is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they would say that only the first five books of the Bible are totally infallible, but they really are counting on Messiah and they really use, especially the Psalms. So, you know, there's a certain, I, I think in my experience, a certain ambivalence, a certain, uh, I guess the word would be ambivalence to the non-Torah race. I'm getting way off the track. Let's go to the word of the day. You know, in the reading today, we see Noah going into the ark. And, you know, we talk about the ark of the covenant and the ark of Noah. And there, I, I just thought, I want to, this, this is just for me. I don't know if I have any sense for other people, but I, I wanted to look up what the word for ark is. Well, the ark of Noah is, is, is the teba, which literally means a box, a chest. And it was probably a word that came from another language uh, uh, than Hebrew. It was probably a foreign word. 
And I wonder if that isn't because this story is very, very ancient. So Tabah was just a box. The Ark was kind of this square barge. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, well, but I saw a picture of the Ark. It looked like a big ship. Well, it was a big ship, but the word means a box. That's the Tabah. And what they kept the, the um, oh, by the way, we got lots of lines open, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Let me say it again, 888-914-9149. Now, what the, the Ark of the Covenant was, was a word for, another word for, for chest or, or box, Aaron. And it's very interesting that the, the scrolls of the law in a synagogue are kept in something called the Aaron. And it also is of an uncertain derivation. It means a chest, can even mean a coffin. So the Aaron is, is the, uh, uh, the thing that they were carrying the tablets of the law around and where the Torah scrolls are still stored in a Jewish synagogue. And a tabah is the thing that Moses put his family in. The tabah is clearly a box. The Aaron is, well, it's a chest, which implies it has a cover. Different words, and I don't know why we translate them both as ark in English. So, I don't know, that's worth knowing, but I was curious. All right, that said, let's go to the phones. Hello, Ghostbusters. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> Hardly. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. That's a new one. Let's go to Barbara from Santa Monica, California. Barbara, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. Yes, in the reading of Genesis there, you uh, yes. uh, it's written that um, there were clean animals and unclean animals. Which hmm. ones were unclean? Oh, <laughs> he put all the animals in 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 uh, uh, in the ark, and the clean ones were the ones that were appropriate for food or sacrifice. But unclean animals would be a bat, a camel was unclean. You couldn't eat ca camels. The hyrax, oh. a type of rabbit, was un the the cuckoo is unclean. The eagle and the ferret are unclean. <laughs> so oh. there's all sorts of animals. Yeah, and and remember that this doesn't have. I I think I shared this the other day. This doesn't have anything to do with hygiene. What we think of as hygiene, mm. they're mm. animals that are unacceptable for sacrifice. Uh, for oh, instance, okay. uh, any kind of bird. Uh, 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 is is that is, is a, a bird of prey is unclean. So uh, specifically mentioned, uh, there's cormorant, eagle, gull, hawk, heron, hoopoe, red and black kite, the osprey, the owl, the raven, the stork, the vulture, and the black vulture. And bats, too, were considered unclean birds, so they aren't birds. There are some insects that are clean and some that are not clean. So there you go. How's, does that answer your question? Oh, I never heard that. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, I think it's important for us to remember that, that this, this I, I think, this idea of clean and unclean has nothing to do with hygiene. You know, that, that right. uh, uh, pigs are very clean. They wallow in mud because they have nothing else to wallow in. But you give a, a nice, clean 
pool to a pig and he will be grateful to you. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, chickens are clean. You can eat them. Uh, and I suppose you could offer them to God, but well, doves, let's say doves. Doves are definitely used as sacrificial animals and they're also edible. Uh, if you birds are not cleaner than pigs, birds are too many chicken coop. They're messy. So it has nothing to do with what we mean by hygiene. It has to do with suitability for worship. And it, I suspect that that the animals that were clean were animals that were not used. Uh, they may have been used, but were not generally used by pagans for sacrifice. Uh, the pig, for instance, was a very common offering to the Greek gods, and pigs were unclean, that sort of thing. So it just was a way that God kept the, the chosen people separate from others. So there, you got more answer than you needed. I hope that helps. Oh, I sure did. Thank you. Yes, well, amazing. Good, good. Thank you much. Thanks for listening. Okay. Well, amazing. I don't know about amazing. Well, let's let's go to John from uh, from Kewaskum. Is that the way I'm pronouncing it? Uh, Wisconsin. You know, those towns in Wisconsin have all these interesting names. Yes. What can I do for you? Well, I uh, recently bought a crucifix, and uh, the first time. I've ever seen this. Uh, they painted blood coming out of both hands and both feet, but also both knees. And I'm wondering, did that come from when Jesus stumbled with the cross and got bloody knees from that? Yes, that would be that would be a reasonable assumption. Now, I personally believe the Shroud of Turin is the real thing. And the Shroud of Turin is covered with blood, covered with blood. And... Uh, the Padre Pio had the marks of Christ, and one of the, you know, the stigmata, and one of the marks of Christ that that um, Padre Pio uh, disliked the most was the wound on the shoulder. Christ's shoulders, the man of the shroud, his shoulders are are rubbed raw by the crossbeam that he carried, and nobody thinks about the. So you could have a a crucifix with. With bloody shoulders, but yeah, it was there was there would have been very bloody knees uh, uh, for huh. Jesus. So yeah, that that's I'm sure that's where it comes from, and I'm sure that okay, it, it certainly reflects. Yeah, the I was truth. told this crucifix came from Peru, and I, I I just wondered what the the knee thing was all about. But you answered my question well. Thank well, you. There you go. Well, thank you, and thanks for listening. Let's see here. Let's go to the little you. screen thing. We let us go to Claire from Minnesota. Yeah. Um, hi, Father. I have a question about my niece is getting married mm -hmm. this summer. She's living with her fiance, and the priest hasn't asked her to separate. And mm -hmm. if she's going to be getting married in mortal sin and she's committing a sacrilege, should I even be going to the wedding? Well, you don't know that she's going to be, you don't know enough about her private life. You can assume it, but what I would, I would certainly go to the wedding and be jubilant about it because she's finally beginning to learn she has to obey God. Now, remember that to commit a mortal sin, you must have grave, grave matter. And she certainly does. If she is living in an intimate relationship with someone to whom she's not married, that's grave matter. You must also have complete freedom. She probably is doing this freely. You must also have knowledge. In other words, she must know that it is a mortal sin. 
She may have been told it's a mortal sin, but everybody does it. So how could it be a mortal sin? People are so poorly educated in these things these days that though she may be doing something that's gravely morally wrong, she may not be fully culpable of it. So you can't judge the state of her soul, and she may go to confession uh, before the wedding. But I would certainly go to the wedding and go happily because she is being married in the church and... Most people her age don't even bother with that. So be supportive of the virtue that's there uh, instead of um, critical about the, the uh, possibility of sin. You don't know the possibility of sin, but you certainly know the, uh, the, the, the blessing that the sacrament of marriage is. Does that help? Yeah, except that um, does she even receive the graces if she is in the state of mortal sin? Well, again, we, we don't know that she's in the state of mortal sin, because do we know that she has full knowledge and full full freedom in this? We don't know that. But she would receive the grace of the sacrament if she knew she was in mortal sin and uh, was guilty, therefore, of mortal sin. She would receive the graces the first time she went to a good confession after her marriage. So the graces are given okay. to her. She would receive them. Uh, you know, it would be still be a valid marriage, even if she was not perfectly uh, in okay. perfectly in the state of grace. Yes. Okay, that helps, I hope. Yes, thank you. God bless, Claire. Let us go now to Carolyn from North Hills, Minnesota. Are you with us, Carolyn? Yes, hi, Father. What can I do for you? Well, um, I have a question. My husband and I teach RCIA. We got stumped last yes. week by this question. Um, in the early church, when Jesus ordained the Twelve, was there any distinction between bishops and priests at that time? Or, I mean, they were all bishops, right? But eventually they get bishops and priests. So how did that happen? Well, this is very interesting. Um, uh, the, they would have been ordained <laughs> at the Last Supper. <laughs> you know, that, that, that when Jesus uh, 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 gave what they call the priestly prayer, uh, at the Last Supper, let me pull it up here, that that, that implies he's consecrating them uh, uh, to to the high... Well, here, it's in John, the 17th chapter. And uh, Jesus uh, prays for his apostles to be consecrated. Consecrate them in truth, thy word is truth. So he consecrated them. And, you know, there is no distinction... Uh, in a sense, between bishop and priest, there is a distinction between priest and bishop. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that, that all, all bishops are priests. Not all priests are bishops. And one does seem to suspect, in the very earliest days of the church, that the powers of the episcopate uh, were, were given to these men and the powers of the presbytery at the same time, and they sort of divided it out as the church divided out as the church developed. Now, to say that the apostles were bishops, there are some people who say, well, you can't exactly say they were bishops. They had the powers of bishops, but a bishop was to be the father of a family. The bishop was to be the father of his of his diocese, and uh, until 820 A.D. or 850 A.D in the reign of Pope Marinus I, and I've shared this with people, if you were a bishop, you would never be pope. Popes were taken from the, the deacons and the presbyters of Rome, the pastors of Rome and the deacons of Rome, usually. Sometimes even lay people would quickly be ordained then. But the reason being that a bishop, when he was made the bishop of a diocese, didn't move anywhere. 
for a bishop to change diocese was considered adultery. And that's why a bishop wears a ring. He's married to the bride of Christ in his specific locale, in his diocese. So the, the apostles were missionaries. They did go from place to place they were supposed to. But the people they ordained after them were not to be moved around. So the the apostles, by their apostolate, had the powers of the bishop. But but um, there are some people who say perhaps bishop isn't the right word for them. Uh, um, they established bishops. I don't know if that helps at all. But yes, in the earliest days, it does seem that the elder and the bishop were the same thing. And the two, the function, sort of the assistant to the bishop being the presbyter, uh, that was divided out as the first century unfolded. Does that answer the question? Wow, yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's you know, we, we want to say it's got to be exactly the way we do it now. No, Jesus consecrated them in, 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 in at the Last Supper. Uh, um, but it was a super in John 17. It was a kind of a super consecration that, that and I'm sure he explained it. He told them what he wanted them to do. So there you go. I hope that helps. Thank you, Father. God bless. All right. All right. I think now we can go to Kevin from Chester Hills, Pennsylvania. Are you with us, Kevin? We just got a minute. Yes, Father. Thanks for taking my call. I was okay. just uh, yes. I was just wondering what's the best way to get rid of the resentment. So I resigned the position at work because it was toxic, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get it out of my system, but it just keeps gnawing at me. Two things: when it, a habit of vice. Which this is. It's the vice of envy. Or it doesn't. What do you mean envy? Yeah, it's, it's, and it's a vice of anger. Vices eat up our soul. What you got to do, a, a habit of vice is only uprooted by a habit of virtue. You got to replace one thing with the other. When you feel that little anger coming up in you, what you have to do is take a deep breath. And as you let it out, you just say, Jesus, I trust in you. It's like a sedative. Do that. Take a deep breath wherever you are right now. Just even if you're driving, take a deep breath. Yeah, that vagus nerve, right? Yes, exactly. It triggers the vagus nerve. You let it out, and as you do, you say, Jesus, I trust in you. It's like a Jesus, sedative. Jesus, I trust in you. Yeah, you say it Jesus, quietly to yourself, and yeah, and it really works. And and uh, and when you see one of these people and you want to pop them in the head, make a, but these things have to become habits. You, 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 you say, the prayer that I always say when I see someone whom, whom I'm not terribly fond is, Lord, help me to see this person as you see them. Because he loves them. He never takes my advice. I always tell him, if you knew him as well as I did, Lord, you wouldn't like him. But then God has this problem, as I say. God thinks he's God. You know, these are his kids. You better not badmouth them. So there you go. It's tough. But remember, these have to be habits. And and if you forget to do this and you get mad, do it in reparation after. That's kind of how it works. So does that help? Yeah, that helps. Thank you, Father. It makes me feel like Give it a shot. Got to be a habit. Got to be a habit. And speaking of habits, a good one's coming up. Drew, don't go anywhere because Drew is going to lead you in the Divine Mercy Chaplet and a lot of other swell things. God willing, I'll talk to you tomorrow.